Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. Each episode, we might take a trait and look at what it adds to the game, or focus on a specific investigator, or sometimes we'll do something else like take a first look at cards. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm doing very well, doing very well. Much better than than last time we recorded. (laughs) Very good. Very good. So, the Dunwich legacy has come to its fateful conclusion. How are you feeling about that? I'm still on a a post-Dunwich high. It's been a couple of weeks before I first had a crack at the last scenario. And, yeah, still feeling great about it. It was... It was a really epic finale to that, wasn't it? It really was. It really was. I I wondered after where Doom awaits how they could take it up a notch, but they've managed it. Really impressive. So what are we talking about today? So because the Dunwich Legacy cycle has ended, I thought what we could talk about today was a little bit of sort of looking back at the cycle as a whole, particularly the player cards, because that's what we focused on more. And maybe do some of our sort of best and worst moments, something like that. And I should just add, before we get any further, I know that some people haven't played Lost in Time and Space yet. And I know some people even have have been waiting for this pack to come out before they began playing through the entire cycle. So we'll try not to dive too deeply into spoilers of any particular details from the encounter cards. So uh, what's been on my mind is that we did some of those early episodes at looking at allies, weapons, spells, and we recently did talents. We did them with what the card pool was at the time, and particularly episodes one to four, which were ally and weapon, we did before any of the packs had come out. I think we just managed to sneak in a kind of quick review of Brothers Avia because Miskatonic Museum had come out, is that right? Yes. So... Let's use this chance to maybe just touch on the ones that we've missed from those episodes and if there are any standout cards that, you know, deserve a bit of consideration. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Frank, we, we did have a... We looked at Brother Xavier when we first did Allies, but I know that at that point I hadn't had that much experience playing and I have come to reevaluate Xavier especially amongst all the allies we looked at. So if we can start with him and then look at the other allies we haven't, or briefly look at the other allies we haven't discussed already. Sounds great. So most people probably know what Xavier does. He's five costs, so he's pretty chunky ally slot. You get plus one willpower. Brother Xavier may be assigned damage and or horror dealt to other investigators at your location. And then he has a reaction ability. When Brother Xavier is defeated, deal two damage to an enemy at your location. So yeah, we won't read out all of our all of the extra cards that have come out, but I think Xavier is worth looking at because it, certainly to me he's become one of the stars of the cycle. I don't know how you feel, Frank. Yeah, when you published a deck list of your Zoe deck after Lost in Time and Space, and I was a little bit taken aback to see that you were running only six assets in the entire deck. Well, six plus there was some story assets in there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, two of those six basic assets were Brother Xavier. And we've been talking throughout the cycle about how our opinion of him has basically only been on an upward trajectory and how powerful he is as a card. And I think he's a classic example of how it's easy when you look at a card in a vacuum or when you look at a card for the first time to go, 
well, I'm not really sure about this card. And we've never said that we were, you know, particular experts at evaluating cards blind. But Xavier is a really great example of where a series of different effects can be hard to picture in the abstract, but in play can seem so powerful. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, he's, he's just become... He, he turns Zoe into uh, an absolute tank. And when I say tank, what I'm talking about is ability to deal with the effects of the encounter deck, not just for yourself, but for the players as well. There's a mighty six combined damage and horror that can be assigned to him, which would have gone to allies at your location, which which is a pretty big chunk. And then he's got this extra ability as well, which you know deals a little, can finish off an enemy if if he dies. I quite often I've been doing plays where I I deliberately trigger an attack of opportunity to set myself up for something so move to a different location or play a weapon take the damage onto Xavier which kills him and then I use my setup action if it was playing a weapon for instance to finish off the enemy I'm engaged with so Wonderful. it works it's, like a com- it's really powerful yeah it combined kind of dodge and yeah it, I think he's, he's flexible which is good even if he's a bit expensive and he's yeah he, he, he really really helps you <laughs> It was it was really hard to evaluate that second ability about being assigned damage and horror dealt to other investigators at your location. I think that was really hard to picture. I I played two player Zoe and Rex. We played things like Carnival and Essex County Express, and we just didn't take damage and horror. Like Brother Xavier just took it all, and I had emergency aid, so I was then healing him back up. But it. It's amazing. He's this sort of magnet for for damage and horror, and it's yeah. It was very hard to picture that before I actually played him. And once he's down, the the flexibility offers is just is just astounding. Yeah, I, I'm I'm very impressed. Which other allies have we had then in the packs this cycle? So we've got the art student. Yeah. Who a lot of people are having are enjoying the art student. She's a like a very similar to working a hunch. But obviously uses an action to play, but then yeah. at the same time also has some health and sanity. We found yeah. that charisma is almost a must-buy for most people during Dunwich. So a lot of people have a spare slot. And when you've yeah. got a spare slot, I think art student's quite a good one to go into that slot. And if, if you have two slots, particularly the the second ally that you want going into that slot, you want them to be relatively cheap. And it, particularly if part of their function is going to be to soak up damage or horror for you. You, you want them to be cheap and kind of repeatable. An art student entirely fits that bill. So I've been playing Roland solo and with a couple of other people and running art student in Roland feels to me like a no-brainer just because that extra two sanity is so vital for him. We've also got uh, Elisa Graham, the, the speaker to the dead. Now... Uh... I've not actually played with Elisa, but a friend of mine has, and he gave her an absolutely rave review. Said her ability was incredibly useful for... I can't remember whether it was... I think it was burying a particular encounter card or weakness they didn't want to see, which which would have screwed them over. And he was able to ditch her and the Doom with Moonlight Ritual before it became an issue. That's definitely one possibility, particularly on agendas with high doom thresholds. You can pile doom on. So I played um, Jim Culver solo with Elisa as my main ally, and that meant that you investigate a, a base intellect of four with her bonus, which is really nice. 
and I found her I found her very good yeah very um the the three sanity is also useful for her she's got one health and three sanity because you can you can have a bit of sort of horror overflow onto her if you need it I'd like to see more support for what she's trying to do but I think she is pretty powerful yeah I mean we've seen we obviously know that Marie is coming at some point um yeah and she has this uh, this extra ability once dooms on a card she controls but although it sounds like it should be easy to do it's it's not it's not trivial to be able to control when you get doom on a card obviously when you've got yeah. blood pact it's very easy to do that yeah at least there's a free ability on a card that costs no experience which will usually benefit you which can add a doom onto her so it's, she's she's doom on tap if marie wants it yeah and before Elisa, the only Doom on Tap we had was the Arcane Initiate. So at least now there's a there's a couple of zero XP Doom options. Okay, uh, moving on. We've got Joey the Rat Vigil. Joey the Rat. Yes, I like how you emphasise his rattiness. <laughs> Looking out for number one. So this was an, another rogue ally, and rogues have done really well for allies. And interestingly, he, along with Leo, he's the only zero XP rogue ally because a lot of the rogue allies are one xp or the other three are one xp so i i saw someone confused about the implications of joey's ability so he he does a few things for you so his ability is so it's it's a free action spend one resource choose an item asset from your hand and play it paying its cost on the surface it seems like it saves you the action to play an asset and turns that into the cost of a resource. Yeah. As a few a few good articles recently have said, actually that that's quite a favourable trade because yeah. the, you, you've got the choice to do that and typically uh, rogues have more free access to money. So Jenny, for instance, often has like loads of money in her pockets. Actions are yeah. a more valuable resource so she can use Joey to turn her extra money into more actions, which is, which is good. Imagine if you if you just burgle a location that earns you three resources and you could then spend all three of those resources putting item assets into play if you had other resources as well and that would have taken you one action the alternative is if you wanted to play all three you could spend three actions playing each item action by action and paying its cost and you wouldn't have burgled but you then also wouldn't have two leftover actions to do something else so it definitely feeds into the the interplay that Rogue have with actions that we've seen throughout the whole cycle. The other thing that's good with Joey is that he allows you to keep an item in your hand until you absolutely need it. The number of times I've put something down with skids and then drawn Crypt Chill. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that there is that. Of course, in this situation, Joey himself would be vulnerable to Crypt Chill. Yes, yeah, yeah. But what's, what I like is that if, if you've got a, a weapon, a, a big weapon, like what we'll talk about in a bit, Joey can just slip that into play right when an enemy appears without you getting an attack of opportunity or anything like that. So yeah, the action you would have spent playing that is can be banked. You know, it, you don't have to have that ready when you need it. You know, you can use that action to investigate or do whatever you want. As long as the Chicago typewriter sorry I've, I've spoiled what we're going to talk about as oh, long as that's no. yeah. ready in your hand right. then it just slips straight onto the uh, into the play area which is which i think is cool 
the same with Jenny's guns as well. You know, particularly they take two hands. You you might have a flashlight out or something like that, and you've been doing investigating. And one of the, the fun things that happens as Jenny is you're thinking, shall I play the guns yet? Shall I play the guns yet? Shall I play them yet? Can I hold? Can I wait till I have a bit more resources? A few more, a few more, a few more. And then you're like, oh, now I've got two enemies on me, and I wish I'd played them last turn. And Joey allows you to avoid that. Okay, we'll jump on to Aquina. Mm, so now we're, we're up to the allies that came out in Lost in Time and Space. Yeah. So, so neatly, it seems like every faction got at least one or two new allies. At least one, one XP ally, right? No Seeker. No Seeker high XP allies. That's, that's right, yeah. Anyway, so the, Aquina, the Forgotten Daughter. So she, she's an upgrade from a corset ally. Who also cost experience. Of course, that staple. You're yeah. about to say staple, weren't That's you? right, yeah. Because all those Aquina decks you've run. All those people who bought two corsets just to get some more Aquina in their decks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Aquina's interesting. If you've got Aquina, buying this upgrade only costs you two experience because you've already paid one for Aquina, which obviously everyone already has done who's got a survivor deck. Yeah, yeah. On first blush, and in fact quite a lot of people went, because I think Aquino was spoiled a few packs before she came out, a lot of people thought all the experience was doing was reducing her cost, which is four Five rather one. than five, and then adding an extra pip. But actually, when you read the text carefully, the crucial difference is base Aquina redirects an attack to another enemy at your location, upgraded Aquina redirects that damage to any enemy at your location. So in fact, it can reflect an enemy's damage right back on them, which makes her far more flexible. Yeah, uh, I have yet to try the 3 XP Aquina, and I'm really looking forward to trying it. I'm not quite decided who wants to have a crowd of enemies around them, or potentially a crowd of enemies, but the nice thing about Aquina 3 is you, you don't need that crowd. I love the idea of a sort of survivor ally swarm with Aquina and Pete Sylvester, then you start to look really beefy. Admittedly, they both only have one health. Um, but yeah, that, that that could be fun. I think she's it, it's really elevated the, the one XP version because there's this route that you can build towards now. And I look forward to that. Okay, so let's jump on to... I'm just flipping through my binder. Here he is, Dr. William T. Maleson. Maleson? Malison. Well, I said Malison, but Malison. Andrea said Melson, so you you know you can choose which one you like. Do, do you know what this guy's doing? He's working on something big. That's exactly what he's doing. He's working on something big. I'm not exactly... What is it so, that he's working on? It looks like some bit of like steampunk look, type. It's like an infinity stone or something. <laughs> so Malison fills out for me the Seeker Miskatonic army academic army, if you will. So you've got research librarian, lab assistant, art student, and Malison. They all cost one or two resources. They all bring you at least two sanity and some of them one or two health. And they all have a reaction of some type. But Malison's unique, which is nice, and comes in with a really powerful effect that can give you a sort of quasi- encounter card cancellation it's not it's not pure encounter cancellation is it it's sort of a redraw if you have clues yeah and the other thing about him is that he's he's only one cost and has uh, the surprisingly beefy stats of two health and two sanity same as leo 
Yeah, who costs five or six. Yeah. So I like even just as his base stats, I think he's a good he's a good card to include. One for two and two is it feels really good. Yeah. Yeah. Even if he is unique. Yeah. And then and then the the nice thing about his ability is is having it as a possible thing on tap. You know, if you if I'd paid one for him and never used his ability, that's still probably reasonable. You know, if all he does is soak up a couple of damage and horror, I don't mind that. But to know that I had this chance of avoiding a beyond the veil or avoiding something that's really gonna clear my board, or avoiding a nasty enemy, shuffling that back in, that that could be really powerful. Okay, so finally we've got the 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 long-awaited red-gloved man. Yes, he was never there. So yeah, so I, this this guy is, is is an absolute beast, isn't he? he I mean, five for a start, XP is the opposite of what we've just said about Malison. <laughs> yeah, and he, but he only costs two and has both four health and four sanity, and is fast. What's not to love? Yeah, yeah. I've played with the red-gloved man. I was about to ask. Yeah, I, I know you've played with him, and. I think you've you've been taking advantage of chance encounter. Yes. To to recur him. So survivors have flare that you can use to hunt for allies in your deck, and chance encounter that allow you to replay allies from your discard pile just until the end of your round. So that it doesn't he doesn't stick around quite as long as he would if you'd played him normally. But if you're playing Wendy, you could play the red glove man play a chance encounter and get him back in a subsequent turn, play another chance encounter and get him back in a subsequent turn, and then put your amulet down and play both of those chance encounters out of your discard pile back into your deck and use the Red Club Man five times in a scenario. That's the ideal. I bought him going into Undimensioned and Unseen and played him, put my will up to willpower up to six and my agility up to six, took an attack of opportunity moving from one location to another and then killed a brood <laughs> with him. And then in that upkeep phase, I drew chance encounter and the following turn brought him straight back and killed another brood. And wow. it, just, it just felt magnificent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So powerful, so powerful. You, you almost don't need any other willpower boosts when you've put your willpower to six with him. You're, you can just use the clues that you've placed on broods and... Yeah, his four health and four sanity is... I mean, we were just talking about Malison being good at two and two. Four and four is just ludicrous. You just... Yeah, you you're, you almost want loads of things to hit you just so that you can uh, pile it all on him. Feels really great. So, yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to starting a new campaign, maybe getting him as the first thing I buy. That power turn is just... It just feels magnificent. It feels glorious, you know? I might have to buy some red leather gloves that I can put on for that turn. <laughs> okay, well, should we jump into weapons as well now? Yes, yes. Because we've had a handful of new weapons. Yeah, and so th it feels like the theme for these weapons was really power. So the weapons, there are, there are four that have been added in this cycle. And thinking back to our original weapon episode predominantly all of the weapons came from two factions and those factions were i was about to say seeker and survivor i'm pretty sure it wasn't those no it's, it's definitely not those two <laughs> it was guardian and rogue and there are two weapons for each that we've had so the first one that we got i think in essex was it in essex was switchblade level two 
This card I loved because it was exactly the same as Switchblade level zero, but it added an icon and it also added a hefty plus two combat for an attack. And then it still had that clause if you can succeed by two or more, this attack deals plus one damage. This is, I mean, it's an upgrade to Switchblade, but it's also an upgrade. I mean, we, we weren't that keen on Switchblade when we saw it. Um, but this is an upgrade on the Derringer. So the ability, it, it's basically the same as the, the Derringer, except it doesn't use ammo. Yeah. It costs it costs two less, and it's fast. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's 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 a melee weapon as well, which can make a difference. But broadly speaking, it's just straight up better than a Derringer. So if, if you wanted a Derringer upgrade, you've got it. <laughs> yeah. It's it's uh, the same ability, well, nearly the same as, as Jenny's guns as well. And I think, I have a hunch that getting plus two for a test rather than plus one is more useful than than it would feel. If you have abilities on tap that give you plus one for something, that's nice. But anything that can add plus two for a test starts to feel really potent. So a good example is higher education. Paying one for a plus two, it it just... It, it's it's yeah it, it the the gap between a plus one and a plus two feels greater than simply double it feels more powerful i've i've played switchblade in skids and just he just slices things up i feel like it's sort of it's like lucky it's blessed i managed to draw elder sign with with switchblade so often and just you just end up carving things up well, well while while we're in rogue should we look at the other rogue weapon that's been added yes so this is the Chicago typewriter, which I already knew was a slang for what I would call a Tommy gun. Yeah. So this is a five cost asset. I, I'm guessing the name comes from the noise it makes while you shoot people. Like you're typing away. Yeah. On a typewriter. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, this is a five cost asset. It's got two combat icons. Uh, it is item, weapon, firearm, illicit, and it has four ammo. It has action, spend one ammo, fight. You may spend any number of additional actions when you perform this attack. You get plus two combat for this attack for each action being spent, including this ability's action cost, and it deals plus two damage. So if you spend an action, it's a derringer that does an extra damage. No, it well, it always does an extra damage, isn't it? So it's yeah. unconditional. So yeah, so spending just the basic attack will spend an ammo and give you plus two fight, three damage. Spend two actions and you're on plus four fight and three damage. And spending your whole turn, or probably not quite your whole turn if you're a rogue, gives you plus six fight and uh, three damage. Really nice. And it's two hand icons as well. Two hand slots. Yeah. So the hand slot's interesting to me. What I like about this is that you've got an item like Switchblade 2 that's fast, so it hasn't even spent you an action to put down, and it's only cost you a resource. So that really mitigates the feeling of getting rid of one weapon for another, because when you then play the Chicago typewriter, you're barely losing anything, even if you have to discard the, the Switchblade. That that feels to me really lovely, decent. I, I like the boost. I think the boost's really good. I think it's a really interesting way of doing the boost. Just like I said with Joey Vigil, We've seen throughout the cycle a lot of things to do with actions in Rogue. This is another one to do with actions. If you've bought Ace in the Hole or Gold Pocket Watch, you can start to give yourself some serious combat boosts with the Chicago Time Biter. Right, well, should we jump into Guardian then for the, the last two 
big chunky weapons. Yes, let's. So the first new Guardian weapon was one that I think its day has not yet come. It's the Springfield M1903, which is a two-handed weapon as well. It also costs four, and it's four XP, so it's sort of on a par with the typewriter. It has three ammo, and it's when you spend an ammo to fight, you get plus three combat and you deal plus two damage for this attack. So you end up dealing three, so it's plus three for three damage. But the kicker is, cannot be used to attack enemies engaged with you. So finding ways that enemies aren't engaged with you is the, the key there, or making enemies not be engaged with you. And I've, I've yet to see anyone really pin down a, a reasonable way of, of doing that beyond shooting at their their partners and hoping they don't miss. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. It it seems to back up either an evading character or a, a character who can who can somehow bestow aloof on it. Oh, even then, you can't attack them or attack <laughs> a, a, attack aloof enemies would be the other thing. So I, I don't know whether we'll see a guardian like that or another class like that who can access this, but that feels like a weapon that they want to use. Yes, it might be that it's a really particularly four-player weapon as well, where you have a Guardian who's really investing heavily in weapons, and this is a sort of fifth weapon for them, and someone else in the party is really doing a lot of evasion and, and locking down enemies, and then the Guardian is just gunning them down. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting option at the moment, but I, I, as you say, I don't think we've quite seen, seen its time yet. Because if you want to use it for a big enemy, if you want to use it shooting at... Silas Bishop, someone needs to evade him at evade of seven. And if you want to use it to shoot at Seth Bishop, someone's got to evade Seth at five evade, or keep Seth on them while you shoot at them. So both of those situations don't seem reasonable yet. To be continued, I think, is the, uh, is yeah. the Springfield. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it when we see some other synergies yeah. for the weapon. Okay, so the last new weapon is the lightning gun. So I think this this surprised a few people because it's certainly more on the pulpy side of Lovecraft, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Anyone who's played Eldritch Horror has seen the lightning gun already, but for those people who weren't weren't expecting an almost steampunk gun, took them by surprise. So it is a six-cost asset. It's five experience. It is item weapon firearm uh, with three ammo. So this has the most bonkers bonus we've seen. So this is spend one ammo, fight... You get plus five combat for this attack, and you deal plus two damage. This is another double hand slot weapon. If you're plotting the graph of the combat bonuses and damage bonuses, Lightning Gun sits there at the top right of having achieved the most. So the main the main purpose I can see for this is is for using in combo with double or nothing. Oh, nice! Yeah, that's that's lovely. So this takes Zoe and and Roland up to nine combat, which is enough to reasonably hit anything with double or nothing that is you know up to four fight even five fight you're still at nine which is only one behind so stick in you know an overpower and a vicious blow and suddenly you're three over that yeah well and the double or nothing is plus one as well yeah yes of course yeah the double is plus one yeah so that then then you start to do a lot of damage yeah exactly yeah yeah aside from that it just seems like a bit of overkill (laughs) do you know what what i mean (laughs) I've been running it solo, and in the way that I feel like the Switchblade is blessed, I feel like the Lightning Gun is cursed. 
Every time I get it in my hand, I either draw paranoia and have no resources, or I draw an encounter card that makes me discard cards from my hand and it gets chosen, or something else happens. I even took a, a hit from a Yidian Observer very recently, and I had eight cards in hand, and the Yidian found the lightning gun and threw that out of my hand. So I've <laughs> there's so many scenarios I've had it in hand, and I think it's got onto the table once. Which I suppose is the risk you're always going to have with these high XP cards that the game has a way of knowing which cards to pluck from you. And yeah, We've already decided that that's a universal rule of Arkham is that as soon as you splash a load of experience on a, on a, on a card, yeah. that's, you know, they're never ever going to draw that, especially not in the game just after you've bought it. Yeah, that card is then super heavy in your deck and also super slippery in your hand. And yeah. Yeah. If only so, there was a there was a weakness that cost a lot of experience to add to your deck. That would be great. Yeah, yeah, that would be very good. Yeah, so Lightning Gun, I it's it's great to have in the game as well because it also gives us a a benchmark for crazy powerful weapons. You know, between this and the Chicago typewriter, that's I think what we can expect. And I like the fact that these two are they're three damages. They're not, you know, deal six damage. It that's Getting even a bonus of plus two to your damage is going to cost you a lot of XP and going to be hard-earned. Well, that's that's the weapons. Should we jump on to spells? Yeah. So we won't go through every single spell in detail, but I think there are there are two little pods of spells, really, that are worth glancing at. One is that some of the early staple spells have, have got upgraded versions. So Shriveling, we mentioned on the episode that there was Shriveling level three, Shriveling also now has a level 5, and it's the first card in the game that has... There are now three versions of 0, 3, and 5, so that's quite interesting. Then Rite of Seeking, we also got an upgraded version, and Ward of Protection, we got Ward of Protection level 5. So one of the themes for spells in the cycle were giving us more powerful versions of the same spells. I think it's an interesting contrast to the weapons, because we seem to get new options for weapons like the shotgun or the lightning gun or the Springfield. Yet with the spells, the spells seem to be getting better, as if your ability to use the spells has got better rather than a whole new spell. So that's yeah, that's a nice way, a nice observation. The, the top level shriveling is is, you know, it's comparable to the power of the shotgun or the lightning gun. It's it's a really potent card. But of course that comes from having to drop the other copies, the lower power copies from your deck. So yeah, yes. I, I think it's, it's... A, guardian, a guardian by the eighth scenario might have ended up with six or seven weapons in the deck yeah, if yeah. they've been buying new weapons and not replacing lower XP versions. And a mystic at the end of the, the campaign can still only have two shriveling. They might have spent ten XP on those two shriveling, but they still only have two in their deck. So we, we've got a handful of new spells as well. Yeah, we've got hypnotic gaze, which is nice. I still think it's a little bit pricey. So it often is one of the first cards to hit the cutting room floor. We've got Moonlight Ritual, which is a great yeah. combo card for Marie when she comes out. But also, I think generally quite good, especially if you picked up Blood Pact. And that is the other spell that we got, right? Yes, it is, yes. Blood Pact obviously fell slightly into that talent bracket because it was a 3 XP permanent that came out in Blood on the Altar with the other 3 XP permanents. But it's actually a spell. Who knew? And a pact as well. Important trait there. Yeah. 
So on those on those three, Moonlight Ritual, exactly as you say, it feels entirely like a combo card, and that's quite all right. And I like that it's come after Blood Pact because it feels like a wonderful way of mitigating one of the difficulties of Blood Pact. Blood Pact, when you've paid to have it, if you're playing a scenario with a fairly long Doom track, I'm talking maybe six or seven Doom, you can be very wary of using the Blood Pact and say you've drawn an enemy and you want to start shriveling and you want that boost, that can get a bit tricky if you're going to put a couple of Doom and lose yourself a couple of turns with when there are still plenty of turns to go before the agenda ticks over. You don't want to wait for the witching hour is what I'm saying. Moonlight Ritual really really helps with that. So I have I've had quite a lot of fun with a blood pack gym running ritual and running Elisa Graham and it gives you a lot of flexibility then around you know when you want to use doom, how you want to use doom, those power turns where you take three combat or willpower tests, maybe four if you've been given a willpower test in the encounter uh, the mythos phase, it becomes a really useful card then. Yeah. Yep. And just you mentioned hypnotic gaze being a little bit expensive. I I agree. I really like it as a card. I've been running it actually in Daisy because she can generate so many resources through Dr. Milan and investigating and it feels nice to have a sort of a dodge effect in Seeker. Oh, that's quite a nice idea. I like that. Definitely if you want to go down a kind of lean and mean Agnes build, maybe with Dark Horse, Hypnotic Gaze seems to immediately hit the... the the cutting room floor because it's just three cost is you know it's the equivalent of shriveling and it's a one-off effect it can be hard to justify yeah i'm agreeing with you basically i think it's a great card though okay so if that's our spells we've just got talents left yeah they added 16 new talents i can't can't believe how we're going to get through (laughs) i'm joking they added one there's just one new talent since we did our talent episode and that is try and try again, which is a two-cost talent that actually costs you three XP to have in your deck, and it has a reaction trigger after a skill test is failed. If the skill card you own is committed, if a skill card you own is committed to that test, exhaust try and try again, return that skill card to your hand. So I talked about this when I did the Lost in Time and Space first look. What do you think about this card? It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's especially nice. I feel like it's a Wendy card because it can work with some of the cool skill cards Wendy uses, like Double or Nothing. I found Wendy often has Double or Nothing. Yeah, Quick Thinking as well yeah, is a nice option the there. Stroke of Luck and the Survival Instincts. So if you spent experience on skill cards, you can just bring them straight back to your hand. I suppose if you're using Stroke of Luck... You've got you've got a real option there, haven't you? That that you can you can choose to exile it and complete and pass the test, or you can say actually that's not that's not too bad. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna exile it, and I'll just bring it back to my hand instead. In if you drew uh, the tentacle, which doesn't allow you to exile Stroke of Luck, you could you could then get Stroke of Luck back instead, which really that's that's a real great possibility. I think it's it, it's it's nice. I think it's it's possibly hard to justify a skill slot uh, a, a deck slot for it in decks we've got at the moment yeah which don't necessarily run a huge number of skill cards i think the more if we see more skill heavy builds in survivor obviously at that point it's a great pick and yeah it, it, it's, yeah. It's, on, it's on it's on the cusp i think as they add more skill cards to the game 
its power will grow because there'll be you could reach that point where your only asset is try and try again and then every test you're passing by throwing skill cards in and you'd have it as a protection if you ever fail a test to get the skill card back yeah, also, yeah, I like, like it if we ever see if we ever see a survivor who really wants to be throwing skill cards to other people's tests a sort of really supportive survivor and committing lots of cards that this could be a, a real must include at that point so yeah watch this space let's see what happens so peter are you ready for the rapid fire round where i ask you questions and you answer them i haven't got my buzzer plugged in yeah <laughs> go for it go for it <laughs> you're the only person on the so so I'll, what, so I'll win. <laughs> yeah what peter was your favorite player card in the dunwich legacy cycle does this include the big box uh yes it can do yeah yeah because <laughs> you know what i'm gonna say in that case <laughs> actually it's I'm, a fire axe sylvester <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, i'm still a big fan of fire axe uh it was in my deck all the way through uh the campaign and i still really really like it i think it's thematically good and i like it mechanically as well probably other cards have been a bit more actually powerful like stand together has been i'm never ever sad to draw stand together I think that's such a such a nice card to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I want to wholeheartedly agree on on with you on that. Such a powerful card. How about yourself? What's what's looking good for you? Going all the way back to the to the big box shortcut has consistently oh God, yeah, rocked my world, and particularly with the way that the Dunwich Legacy investigators work, where any of them can take it. I've just it's it's always been maybe sort of the fifth choice if there's just a choice it's like oh I'll put shortcut in definitely and it's always good and I'm always glad to see it it got to the point where if I was playing someone who could take pathfinder and shortcut I wouldn't upgrade shortcuts into pathfinder I'd upgrade something else into pathfinder because I'd want to keep the shortcut because I loved how flexible it was and yeah I think I think seekers generally I mean, we've not talked about Seekers too much because there's only been Malice and an Art Student and they've you know, not got more spells. But I think they've done really well out of this cycle. I've Got a Plan was really cool. Inquiring Mind was really cool. Uh, like I've, I've loved using that. Preposterous Sketches was really good. These, these I'm now sort of rambling slightly, but there were some, there's some really nice cards. I, yeah, I think so. And, and, and I think Higher Education has certainly turned out to be pretty high on the power curve. Yes, yes. Seekers are good at one of the key things you need to do to win in Arkham, which is investigate. And a lot of yes. a lot of the tools they've got to do the other stuff have actually they're quite good as well. So stuff like I've got a plan is 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 pretty good. Yeah. So I think that they've they've tended to they're in quite a good position at the moment. Yeah. The 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 one way that you can do four damage with a single attack at the moment without adding vicious blows or adding extra cards or double or nothings the one way is being a seeker with three clues there's not yeah. there's nothing else that does it or a shotgun if you can pass by four but that that to me is really fascinating that seekers which are probably the least combat oriented of all of the factions have a really powerful card okay what's 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 my next question what's next the next question is what card or and this could be broader into a sort of deck idea or archetype. Which card or deck archetype do you feel needs still the most development? So what, which one are you excited about as an idea, but you just don't feel it's quite got off the ground yet? Oh, God, that's a good question. I wish I'd thought about this more. So I'm going to answer first. Go on, and, 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 and I'll think, yeah. I feel like Jim Culver is great 
particularly in higher player counts, but there isn't quite enough yet in the card pool that he has access to to make not take make him taking him over Agnes a viable choice. And I, when I've played Jim Solo particularly, he's been quite good at everything, but I've not seen him really shine. Or I've had a couple of power turns, but I've never felt like a Jim Culver deck quite gets off the ground. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree with you. I played in a three-player campaign where I was Jim, and I've played one two-player where the other person was Jim, and I've played Jim Solo, and... At least two of those, it's really like sputtered and and fallen apart. And I've been left feeling like if only my willpower was a bit higher or if only my other things were, you know, my other statistics were good or if only I had a reliable way of evading enemies. You know, it, it, it was a, a lot of if onlys and I was just waiting for maybe that one last ingredient that things would really start to click. I think if, 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 if we get some more chaos bad manipulation tools... Those are the sort yes. of cards which I can see Jim profiting from more. Yes. If there was anything that allowed him to treat other Chaos bag tokens like skulls, that yeah. might start to really click. I was just about to say, though, tomorrow Ashcan Pete and, and Jim take on Lost in Time and Space, and my the person playing Jim is a big jewel of Aureolus fan and uses it to great effect. So we'll see how that that could be that I completely change my mind by tomorrow if he rocks his way through Lost in Time and Space. So so I've thought about this, and I've, I've got a couple of ideas now. Yeah. First up, it would be interesting, I think, to see a more purely support-focused Guardian class, or Guardian yeah. Investigator. So one that not only... Well, doesn't necessarily deal damage in the way that we typically associate with Guardians, but has other ways of intervening and protecting their allies in addition. Yes. So we started to see some healing cards, maybe stuff that proactively prevents damage or... Yeah. That that, that, that like kind of thing. I've, like I've had worse, right? Yeah, exactly. Like I've had worse. So you could almost picture a Doctor character being in that role. So someone yeah. able to to stand in the way of damage okay yeah no that that would be really nice that it seems like the card pool is hinting at that but definitely that would need more fleshing out and then the other one i, I thought about is the one of the things that stopped me from playing rogue was they never released this tool that lets you gives you an additional two when you succeed a test so yeah th- that was one of the themes that really interested me i talked about this a lot when we first started that the theme in Rogue of succeeding by two or more was cool. Yes. We've got quite a few cards like that. I've just flipped open my binder and there's you know upgraded opportunities, there's quick thinking. I think probably every page has some you know, some succeed by yeah. two and you gain an additional bonus. Switchblade, you know? So yeah. it might be interesting there seeing well. that that supported in, in, in a few ways, which could be interesting. Yeah. maybe yeah. I don't know, a, a dedicated gambler, maybe that would be. Oh, nice. Yeah. That, yeah, that would be a really interesting way of doing it. And it, I mean, similarly with the green card pool, we've got a lot of illicit traded cards and there's nothing yet that interacts with illicit, but that would be really interesting to see if there was there was some support for that. I mean, it's not that it's, it's not like those cards are all hugely expensive and if only they were cheaper, but maybe it would be an investigator who can take illicit cards, but can't take other cards from the rogue pool or... You know, it'd be an interesting way angle into looking at the card pool. And I think, I guess, guess the other one that would be kind of cool would be 
a seeker you've mentioned this a lot but the, the kind of the miskatonic swarm <laughs> so, so yeah. a, a seeker which is able to leverage a large number of allies for some other effect as well so whether that's that's just mis- miskatonic allies or or whatever i think that'd well, I be was, quite cool i was thinking if if we see uh, an investigator who can take seeker level zero cards who has as their ability uh, a sort of inbuilt charisma that they have two ally slots rather than one immediately then ally army becomes more viable because this idea that you don't just have to keep overwriting them that you can get two on the table and have a really big soak but it would be nice if there was another detail as well like that your fight went up for each ally you had or your willpower went up for each ally you had or you could discard an ally for a bonus you know there's there's so much that could be done there i I thought you could even have a a card which does something like what did i call it like a, a, a campus career fair or something like that, which gives you a resource for every Miskatonic ally or, or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe more than that. There's a lot of lot of sort of ways that that could be explored, isn't there? You could even do something with cancellation, discard an ally, cancel an encounter card, something like that, which, you know, as the carpool is at the moment, you wouldn't want to can- discard Brother Xavier or Aquina Level 3 or the Red Glove Man, but you might happily discard any of the, the well that's it yeah so, so discarding allies which have to come into a, into play ability would be great yeah because then you could get another effect out of them and then possibly bring them back through other means as well and just have a nice a nice synergy a little engine going yeah it could be very fun um, what cards do you feel either you've overlooked or you maybe gave a negative review to when we were talking about cards and you've changed your mind about? Well, one I had in mind, which I've seen some people use to quite a bit of success is, or, well, some success anyway, is Lure. And Mm. Lure is interesting because it was a card I certainly overlooked when when it was revealed. But I think its power is comes from the nature of the encounters rather than something I overlooked about the card. If you see, yeah. do you see what see I'm trying to say? So it's 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 a situationally useful card, but actually that situation has become quite common in the latter part of the the Dunwich Legacy. So lure for people who don't know, if if an enemy moves, instead of moving where they were going to move, they move towards lure. So this has this can be used to good effect during the uh, undimensioned and unseen. If you're trying to maneuver the broods around, it can be used in the in where Doom awaits, you've got the devotees of the key trying to run up to the top of the hill. You can bring them back yeah. down the hill towards you where you can kill them and stop them sticking a load of Doom on your agenda. So I think if if I was going back and doing Survivor, I think I'd take a look at that again and maybe include it. Yeah, that Ashcan Pete playthrough that's happening tomorrow, I ended up taking two Lure and exactly as you described, I had those things happen so there was a, in fact a situation in Undimension Unseen where there was an avian thrall a lupine thrall and a whippoorwill and we had a brood one location away from us that we wanted to go and kill that turn I think maybe another brood was about to turn up or you know you know in Undimension Unseen you have those moments where you're like I need to close this out now or I'm gonna be submerged by the the you know the, all of the challenges of the scenario and I played lure moved in took a shot at the brood Jim did the same, moved in, attacked the brood, and that turn all of the enemies moved to the wrong location 
Yeah. And that just bought us enough time to do what we needed to do. I think we killed the brood and it just meant then at the start of the next turn we had no enemies on us and we could decide what we wanted to do. That makes me think more broadly of the survivor pool in general and how the survivor pools developed over the cycle with low experience cost cards, nothing above three, and a lot of cards that were quite hard to judge in isolation but having a deck with these different things in them can be really powerful. So Scrapper is a really great example. Scrapper only boosts one for one, and it boosts combat and agility, and you go, oh, well, why do I really need that? But then the following pack, we got Dark Horse, and suddenly Scrapper is a really useful way of dumping resources to turn on Dark Horse. And Survival Instinct Level 2 is a really powerful card, but requires a lot of enemies that you want to evade and move away from. So again... A lot of people don't evade enemies at all and think, why would I need to do that? And then if you're me and you play solo, you have like a train of enemies chasing you and every so often they catch up with you and you just evade them all and run away again. So yeah, I've I've really enjoyed exploring the Survivor card pool and I think it plays so differently from all the others that that's been really enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The last question, what card has exceeded your expectations? Well, we've already talked about Brother Xavier, which has really become one of my favourite cards. So, aside from that, I don't, I don't know what to, where, where to go. How about you? For me, it's Inquiring Mind. Oh, yeah, that is good. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was one of those ones where it's like, well, you've got to make sure you have a clue on your location. It's like, no, it's good. It's I, I would happily take an attack of opportunity to move myself to a location with a clue just so I can use Inquiring Mind. Just plus three is just is just silly good. You know, that's that's what you're paying for experience for in certain weapons to get. It's just a very potent, powerful card, yeah. The other one which maybe and, and, and it's not based on a huge amount of experience, but was better than I thought, was Deciphered Reality. Yeah, you had a very good experience with I that. I did, right? yeah, but I, I was uh with one of my first decks in the Dummage campaign. I'd had Seeking Answers in, which superficially is relatively similar to Deciphered Reality. It's like a mini version of it. Yeah. And I, I never, I don't think I ever used it. I think I only ever used it to commit to tests because it's just too niche. I never got yeah. into a situation where it was worth playing. And my, my logic was Deciphered Reality is a bigger version of Seeking Seeking Answers and I've never used Seeking Answers. Why well, am I going to use a bigger version of it? But the very first game we played, Deciphered Reality came along at the exact right moment and like cleaned house for us it was it was amazing <laughs> so interestingly as well decipher reality one of the ways it differs from seeking answers is it's not a replacement effect that's right so you effectively find two clues on your current location don't you? yeah and if you succeed by two as rex you find three close clues on your current location and one clue from every other revealed location and i'm guessing you're you can also stick a deduction into that test as well can't you yeah and just find even more clues from your location <laughs> yeah you could put in you could put in deduction level two and find five clues from your location plus <laughs> one for each other revealed location. So you know if you need retire, to find clues, retire happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you need yeah. to find clues, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I one of the things I really like about deciphered reality is this idea that we might see a seeker that doesn't like the seeker stays put and they're doing things at their location, and the other investigators are expected to go running around. 
or the seeker gets a pathfinder out and zips around the whole map and then loops back to where the <laughs> original investigators are and just, they're sort of like but you've left all of those clues it's like no 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 i've left just wait to, just, to w- just watch up. this yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 that could be really you know th- that, that's a sort of a, a way of playing the game that hasn't really been possible and we, i would have labeled inefficient before now i had been speculating in the past that is it ursula downs is the explorer Yes. Yeah. Whether her her ability could be, I get, I guess this ties into Pathfinder. Her ability could be moving into unrevealed locations, or something that particularly interacts with unrevealed locations. Mm, yeah, that's nice. And then maybe even a way of making locations unrevealed that were previously revealed. Yeah, that that could be. Yeah, really interesting. Possibly. Who knows? Who knows? Right. I think that's that's everything we wanted to say, really. Isn't it? I'm caught up on all the cards. Yeah, I think so, too. Dunwich Legacy is more or less winding up now. The plan, as far as we see it for Path to Carcosa, is I'll still do first look episodes if I can. We're going to both read The King in Yellow, and if you want to read The King in Yellow and talk to us about it, please do. If you want to email us any of your favourite player cards of this cycle, your card or deck ideas that need development any cards that you've overlooked and have been really good for you, you can email us at drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We love all the emails we get. Thank you for people who've been in touch, whichever way you've been in touch. We're probably more or less drawing a line under Dunwich now, apart from we've got hopefully a really good final Dunwich roundup episode, if we can manage it soon. So keep an eye on the place that you normally get your podcasts from, and hopefully that will be out either next week or the week after. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Twitter. I'm FB, E-P-H underscore B-E-E, and I'm on Discord and the FFG forums and around the place as Zooey Glass or Zozo. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, I'm everywhere as Unitled, which is U-N-I-T-L-E-D, so that's on that's on Twitter, it's on Reddit, it's on Discord, it's on Slack. So yeah, say hello. Great. And also, thanks again to SF Rembrandt for our fantastic logo. He's just put up, actually, a little flyer he's done for the King in Yellow. And it, it looks so, so cool. So go and check out his Instagram and follow him over there. It's great to see that he is getting as hyped as we are for <laughs> Carcosa. It's really nice to see like the community start to get excited. Thank you very much for listening. Brilliant. Thank you. see it in your the way that you read podcasts you read podcasts what is that you'll see it in whichever what do you ah we've got right to the end without screwing this up frank and then <laughs> and now i've done this what, what did i say I said something about a roundup episode we've got, got a, yeah done it <laughs> <laughs>